The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sportbox. These are the headlines. Uh, a new trade fight. President Trump announced his tariffs on all Mexican goods in a bid to stop the flow of migrants across the U.S. border, sending the peso tumbling and U.S. futures lower. Trade tensions continue to hit the Chinese economy as the official reading of manufacturing activity falls more than expected in May. U.S. bond yields continue their drop amid fresh trade concerns and Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida sets the scene for rate cuts if the economy weakens. Uber posts a billion-dollar loss in the first earnings report since its market debut, but shares rise after hours as net losses match expectations. President Trump has announced tariffs on all Mexican imports in an attempt to combat illegal immigration at the border. Trump tweeted that from the 10th of June, the U.S. will impose a 5% tariff on all goods coming from Mexico, with levies increasing until, quote, the illegal immigration problem is remedied. The move comes despite U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer sending a letter to Congress to kickstart the process of approving the, North, uh, the new North America Free Trade Agreement. Now, meantime, Mexico's president responded in a letter saying he wanted to avoid confrontation with the U.S., but telling Trump that, quote, America first is a fallacy because justice, universal brotherhood are more important than borders. Well, to the market reaction, it's been fairly swift. Investors have taken stock of what's transpired on the trade front, first with fears around China, now switching to Mexico. And it has been a safe haven bid for many market participants. That has again driven the US 10-year yields lower, 2.17 we've got on the charts. And right across the board, we've been pushing south. In fact, we've seen 20-month lows on some of these trades. Dollar to the peso, the other key trade for many investors, peso has been falling versus the US dollar, the dollar gaining 2.1% to that currency. So uh, foreign exchange traders very quick to, to price in the increased rhetoric and what that means for relations across North America and for many key suppliers, because don't forget, manufacturing still takes place in many Mexican um, production facilities. So this is quite key for the global supply chain story. Yet again, while we're still contending with China, I want to show you the Asian markets. Uh, the early reaction uh, looks like this uh, across the boards. The Chinese market flat, and there's been some uh, question marks raised now about what this signals around China. It's the same narrative. Uh, we're trying to get to a trade resolution, or with the focus switching to Mexico, whether that is positive news for the Chinese market. We're on the flat line for the Australian market uh, Friday session. Hong Kong 210 South and Japanese stocks suffering from that safe haven bet on the Japanese yen, 230 odd points lower for stocks in Tokyo. Meantime, uh, the Japanese Korean automakers are the big ones moving in the region. You can see all swiftly moving south. Kia down four and a quarter percent. A lot of small cars are manufactured out of Mexico and uh, Kia in that particular market. 
Hyundai down 1.1%, Honda trading down three and three quarters of a percent, Nissan down fairly heavily 5%, but the worst one on the charts is Mazda down more than 6%. US futures as we get set up for the trading session later on today, uh, the early picture is weak as you'd anticipate. Uh, we saw losses yesterday, so we're expected to compound some of the uh, losses that you would anticipate. The data out of China today also suggesting the trade war is taking its toll. The PMIs are coming through fairly weak. The uh, US actually I'll just tell you after yesterday the market's now looking for another weekly drop but also potentially monthly drop as we look to to close out the month of May. Jeff. Terrific Karen thank you. Let's get uh, into this trade story. China's factory activity shrank more than expected in May. The country's official PMI falling to 49.4 from 51.1 in April. Let's get out to Eunice who joins us now from Beijing and Eunice when you dive into the guts of these numbers I think the new order component declining was particularly significant as we look for the impact of this trade row. Just walk us through how the figures are being interpreted there. Well, um, they, it's exactly what you had just said. It was the, all about the new orders, and they fell for the first time in four months. So there were, um, at this point, a lot of economists and analysts are wondering when the Chinese government is going to stimulate and by how much. So um, another um, quite high level, a former Chinese official had uh, stirred things up as well. A former a central bank uh, governor um, had uh, said that the U.S. tariffs could cause thousands of Chinese companies to close. And he said that unemployment in China just continues to rise. So that just uh, really is, um, you know, painting a very uh, negative picture as to the impact of uh, the um, U.S. tariffs on uh, the Chinese uh, manufacturing sector. And then China already is facing its own headwinds uh, from uh, domestically. So separate to that, though, of course, the Chinese government would want to have some sort of trade deal. But I think what the, the latest development that we saw out of uh, the White House uh, deciding to impose um, or at least threatening to impose more tariffs on Mexico um, is uh, uh, um, probably giving pause to the Beijing leadership here, uh, who are now going to be wondering if it really makes a whole lot of sense for them to be negotiating a trade deal with the United States or now or to just wait it out because uh, as uh, one of the officials uh, um, here at, at a seminar had said that they time is time is on China's side so that maybe they should just uh, uh, gut things out since it uh, looks as though uh, President Trump uh, was willing to undermine his own trade deal uh, with um, with Mexico and Canada guys yeah so that's intriguing Eunice so the immediate analysis in Beijing is that tr Trump is now even more untrustworthy because we're in the mid uh, middle of basically completing the paperwork on NAFTA 2.0. We haven't got there yet and he's come back with these sanctions to do with migration. So the interpretation is well that just means we're not going to have a trade deal in China because he's more untrustworthy? Well, I think you would raise the question as to uh, whether or not um, you know, President Trump would be uh, one who would stick to a deal.
And uh, that has already been a, a big question here um, when the Chinese have, have said that they wanted to have a, a, a more trustworthy partner when it comes to this this uh, this trade deal. So I think it's just going to raise a lot of questions and, and um, maybe reconfirm um, some of the suspicions that the Chinese have that even if they did do a trade deal with the United States, it wouldn't necessarily stick. I think otherwise, though, in terms of the, the impact of um, President Trump's decision on Mexico, um, I think that the Chinese government would probably be somewhat pleased that uh, the USMCA uh, wouldn't necessarily go through. And that's because uh, there was a clause in the USMCA that had been uh, raising suspicions in China that the U.S. wanted to use that trade deal in order to try to undermine uh, Beijing's relationships with um, Canada and Mexico. Because in the way, the way that it was being interpreted here is that this clause could allow uh, Washington to have some veto power or influence over the trading relationship between Canada and uh, with Canada and Mexico and then China. So um, so now, because of President Trump's decision on this tariff, uh, that has raised a lot of uncertainty as to whether the USMCA is going to go through. Um, separate to that, uh, Mexico was seen as a beneficiary of the U.S.-China trade war. And already uh, there was a, a U.S. survey out uh, from the AmCham, from the American Chamber of Commerce recently, which said that a lot of uh, its members were considering moving production to Mexico um, as well as Vietnam. And uh, now that, that too could, could have been given pause. I think that the other way in which China comes out a winner is that uh, Beijing has been trying to project itself as a, a grown-up on the international stage and to really showcase itself as, as a, the state as, as steady, uh, the steady partner that you'd want, as opposed to the very unstable United States. And I think that this, this latest decision by President Trump would, would only reaffirm what, um, what Beijing has been attempting to, to tell the rest of the world. Eunice, terrific. Thank you. We'll come back to you a little bit later on for an update. Richard Kelly has joined us, head of global strategy at TD Securities. Richard, this introduces a whole, whole new area of risk into the markets. It's been a soggy week, let's face it, for the risk on trade this week. How do we interpret this latest salvo against Mexico in terms of understanding, one, in the short term, what this means for the risk trade, and two, over the medium to longer term, what this ultimately means for global growth? Right. Well, I mean, it's not even a month before we sort of had the about face when it came to U.S.-China relations. So I think it just continues to escalate this issue. We started to see global growth bonding. Things started to look a bit better. And now we're just starting to pile back into the massive uncertainty that has to weigh on equities. It has to weigh on credit. It has to weigh on, on uncertainty. As you mentioned, you know, even in U.S.-China negotiations, there's going to be a lot less trust of, well, why do we keep negotiating if we're just going to end up in another problem a month from now? Whereas from the U.S. side, they're probably thinking this shows our resolve. That's definitely not the message that's going to come across to other sides and to the market. Can I throw up another uh, scenario that we've now got a different common enemy presented to American voters? I mean, it was painted as China being the num enemy number one. And effectively, therefore, we need to put tariffs on the border against China. Uh, the president has just presented Mexico now as the common enemy as well. Does that shift the narrative and allow a Chinese deal to take place? Because, you know, word was that there was one coming, but it may not have enforcement. So the market investors, voters would have to get used to having a deal that was not the deal that was promised. And this type of scenario, I think everybody would be pretty happy if a deal just got done right. Right. Well, I guess, I mean, there's a few things in there. I guess the one, at least from what we've seen of the very limited discussion of the Mexico side, it wasn't necessarily pitching Mexico as 
the enemy per se. It was Mexico needs to control the flow of Central American immigrants coming in. So at least it's sort of as a proxy. A threat to all Americans, the way it's being painted, the immigration on the border. I mean, that's a real negative rhetoric that the president has tried to present, right? Absolutely. But at least, at least there, it's a single issue. And it's an issue more of Mexico needs to do something relative to what's going through its borders as opposed to Mexico itself. But I think the other wrinkle in all this is USMCA. And how does that get through? You now have, well, what are the incentives from the Mexican side to put this through. How does this now factor into a Democrat-held House that, you know, was already hesitant to probably put this on the agenda? Well, now there's another reason to dangle this out and potentially get it into an election year where it's even less likely to get through. The other big component here now is what central banks do, because uh, the market has been raking through the Chinese PMI saying, well, it's evidence, isn't it, that the PBOC and authorities have not been effective in stimulating enough, given we've got weak export and import numbers. And then in the United States, we've got the market pricing and expectations of two rate cuts now because President Trump has apparently steered us off the growth course. So what reaction are we going to see from from central banks? I think from a Chinese side, there still is a tolerance to let the renminbi depreciate further. So I think that's one they had certainly wanted to try to try and draw a line in the sand at seven. That doesn't look there. So I think that's their first course for trying to put stimulus is letting the currency depreciate. They still are very, very hesitant to cut rates out of China. There at least is an ability given how soft the pricing is for the U.S. And certainly if the Fed were to cut, the PBOC I don't think would be that far behind it. But as of now, it looks much more about a fiscal stimulus side in China than it does monetary stimulus. On the Mexico side, it gets interesting as well. The market had been putting in a lot of rate cuts that didn't seem very likely. This potentially changes that now. And now, you know, with, with inflation expectations, whether they are, Mexico may be able to ease as well on that side. How do I make, how do I make money out of this? Uh, I mean, at this point, look, you, you still are, we've been suggesting not uh, avoiding all the trade related currencies in Asia. Right. It's still going to get hurt on this. Um, you know, we're looking on top side on dollar max anyway. There's still top side here. I think this is still a strong dollar trade first and fundamentally. It doesn't help turn around rates at this point. It doesn't help, you know, on that side. But I think it's, it's a strong dollar trade. OK, uh, you're going to stay with us, Richard. We'll come back to the conversation in just a moment. Richard Kelly, head of global strategy at TD Securities on the economic calendar today. Let's just flag this up for you. UK house prices are expected to remain subdued in May, while the Turkish economy is expected to contract for the second quarter in a row. Italy front and centre, first quarter GDP due at 10 CET. Growth is forecast flat at 0.1% on the year. And as another deficit fight brews with Brussels, the Bank of Italy will release its annual report in which Governor Vizco will detail the economic outlook and assessment of major global risks. And I think we may have a little treat from Villa in terms of the Italian economy later, but we'll tell you about that as we get to it. Coming up, a top Fed official signals they are open to rate cuts if the US outlook dims. We'll have more on Mr. Clarida's comments. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from to have a listen and download today's episode. Shares in Uber have risen in extended hours after the ride-sharing firm posted a quarterly net loss of $1.01 billion in line with expectations in its first earnings report as a public company. 
First quarter revenue rose 20% compared to the previous year, near the top end of the company's guidance. Uber added that it is seeing competition easing from domestic rival Lyft. Elizabeth joins us with more. Elizabeth, one of the great things about Uber is that you can get from A to B pretty easily. It's not that challenging. But getting through the earnings release yesterday was incredibly difficult, very comprehensive report with different subcategories and even a glossary of terms on page 11 and 12, or 10 and 11 of, of the release, just in case. That's right. <laughs> Uber has to define a lot of the areas of its business because it's expanded into so many different segments and sort of quest to become like Amazon, and that's its own reference. What we saw in this report was revenues in line with what had been expected, $3.1 billion. That is a 20% growth year on year. But that net loss of $1.01 billion, which we had seen in that early IPO filing, so that was in line. And generally, the stock is taking a bit higher because it looks like investors are maybe starting to buy into this vision that they can ultimately start to someday make a profit. Now, of course, no guidance on the call on when that would be. What we did hear from the CEO on the call was talk of increased competition, but maybe a little bit less competition from that domestic rival, Lyft. Here's what CEO Dara Kosterchai said when in regards to competition with Uber. In the U.S., if you listen to uh, the, the Lyft conference call, for example, they talked about competing more on brand. And I think that competing more on brand and product is, is call it a healthier mode of competition than just throwing money at, at a challenge. Uh, so we have seen that um, uh, pencil out into the market. Will things get better, better or worse? We, we can't predict. But I think that sitting here today versus where we were three months ago, um, we're always uncomfortable in our chairs, but we're, you know, less uncomfortable, so to speak. And I think we have more of a handle on the competitive situation. And I think we feel net better. Now, that can get worse or better. So less uncomfortable there, not entirely reassuring. And we did see some signs of where that competition is playing out. Specifically, if you look at the breakdown by region, Latin American revenues declined 13%. And that was the one area where it slowed down. And that's because we've seen massive competition from Uber's Chinese rival Didi. Now, the other regions did show strong growth. U.S. and Canada up 26%. Europe, Middle East and Africa up 26%. And Asia Pacific also grew 6% year on year. But Still some signs of competition in those numbers, despite some reassuring comments from Uber there. I wanted to pick up on some of the uh, categories that come first. I mean, typically we, we just look at you know, profit, look at revenue, a couple of other lines in releases. In Uber's numbers, it effectively has a calculated adjustment around revenue. When if you take on board what that adjustment considers, it is basically the original revenue figure, which we, we all get. You deduct certain incentives it pays to independent contractors. So if you have to pay more to keep the contractor, then that's the cost of doing business. But that's an adjusted number. Shouldn't that be the real number when we have a huge contract workforce? And we saw in these numbers Uber having to pay up triple-time incentives, I believe, to, to keep some of the drivers on board. Yes, so this, this take rate is one of the key numbers, and that ultimately factors in all of those costs at the end after the, not just the gross bookings number of, you know, dollars per booking, it's after you've paid those incentives. And a really important metric, that's a really important metric that uh, investors are looking at because if you think of Uber Eats, for example, the take rate is about 7.8% and the take rate for ride sharing is around 20%. So what that's saying is the areas that Uber is diversifying into have a much lower margin that they're bringing in. So there's not so much a clear way to show that even if Uber does manage to diversify out of its core business, it's going to be able to make money from those other segments. So there we go, never going to make a profit. Uh, that's what the, the numbers are potentially telling that's us right. at this point.
thank you very much for that, thank Elizabeth. Uh, let's push on. Uh, I'm going to take you back to uh, some of the market action, I believe. Uh, let's uh, take a look at uh, the US trading session in the green for the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ. But uh, it was a challenging trading session for many of these major markets. The real estate and tech sectors, the ones where you saw some appetite for stocks. When it comes to the real estate, very uh, yield sensitive type of part of the or component of the market, I should say. And the market was very much leaning into some of the commentary from Richard Clarida that uh, effectively if there was some pressure on inflation, if you saw some easing in the second half, then perhaps the Fed could be easing. And this uh, message, investors were closely watching for signs about how much activity we can expect from the central bank. Some had already moved a price in, uh, potential for two rate cuts. So the market uh, picking up on that central bank language. And that's why we did see some green on the boards. But we've got a challenging session ahead of us as we look to close out the week because of the latest tariffs on Mexico. When it comes to the averages for the week, all trading lower. We're looking at the fourth straight week of losses for the S&P and NASDAQ. The Dow down for six straight weeks at this point. In terms of yields, the safe haven trade has been on all week and investors have been marching back into yields. The 10-year 2.17 is what we've got. So we were trading much lower than uh, these levels intraday as well. Let's get to uh, what we're seeing elsewhere, Jeff, and uh, why the market is so nervous. Yeah, let's uh, get on to these comments uh, around the Fed. The uh, Federal Reserve is open to rate cuts if the U.S. economic outlook worsens, so says uh, Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida. Uh, speaking at the Economic Club of New York, Clarida stressed that while the U.S. economy was, quote, in a good place, it was important for the central bank to stay nimble and take into account any shortfall in inflation or material rise in global risk. His comments come as traders price in a more than 80% chance of at least one Fed rate cut by the end of the year and a 40% chance of two, according to the CME's Fed Watch. Well, I don't know about uh, rate cut watch. We seem to be on a uh, 10-year Treasury watch for sub 2% at the moment, Richard. I, do you think that's going to happen? I mean, rates have been collapsing very rapidly. No, I mean, without an, an actual delivery from the Fed of a rate cut or some sort of significant risk off that probably delivers that anyway, it, it's just very difficult to see how we get 10 years down there. We know that there's a lot of structural demand going through. The Fed just last night put out details of what it's going to do in terms of when it's um, selling out of M MBS buying into further treasuries. So know that this in part is, is leading to some of the inversions that we're putting on. But I still have a hard time seeing how we can get to 2%, how we can even sustain the levels we're at now if the Fed ultimately is not cutting rates. The um, Clarida comments, I think, were, were interesting. Do you agree with the analysis um, that the market's putting on the Fed now that it will be one and done for the rest of this year? I think it's I think if you look at where the U.S. economy is right now and even where the Fed and consensus and where everyone is putting the U.S. of how it's likely to develop this year, it doesn't yet justify a rate cut. And I think the market here is very well ahead of where this data is. Now, just as we discussed a little bit ago, when you keep having surprise trade issues coming up month after month after month, it's not about the data. It's about all of these paper cuts adding up over you know consecutive period of time and getting us there. But everything you see now, and even if you look back in history, you still need the ISM to get below 51, very close to 50, before the Fed typically comes in and eases. You still need the yield curve to invert even more than it has before the Fed historically eases. So we aren't there yet, but we are a lot closer than we were a couple months ago. Yeah, and we're kind of stepping away from the narrative that the inflation levels are transitory. Some of the weakness is just going to be a fleeting moment for investors because we've had the PCE, which is a measure that the Fed does consider when it takes aboard its monetary policy decisions. We've gone from 1.3% in the first quarter 
to 1%. That's a swift decline in a short period of time. How much deeper would we need to see this fall before we have action? at least at one rate cut from the Fed. I think that at least, you know, if you have decent growth in sluggish inflation, you don't tend to have the Fed ease, but you let them have a protracted pause for a long period of time. So I think this is where they're all very comfortable. The urgency that we saw near the end of last year of we need to hike because inflation could be moving higher, especially with tariffs, is gone. They're all very comfortable sitting here and doing absolutely nothing, but there isn't a core that's comfortable easing. And I think the issue on inflation, there still is an active debate. Yes, we're low, but if you go to something like the Dallas trim mean measure, which tends to strip out some of the more volatile parts of core itself. So we're going from headline inflation to core to core core. That's still sticking right around 2% and is suggesting that this is actually some volatility in a few factors of core inflation. And cyclically, we're going to get core back up as well. So I think this is the debate. If that narrative starts to change, inflation expectations more broadly start to come down, then the Fed will be comfortable to move. Richard, thank you very much for that. Uh, we are just going to squeeze in a quick break, but in the meantime, uh, the street so-called bond king, Jeffrey Gunlack, says after a week of volatility, yields may have bottomed for now. Head online for that story. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.